You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. This week, we hear about immunization in Chad. There are misconceptions regarding the vaccine, where the vaccine is associated to infertility. And how to spot an ectopic pregnancy. Two or three hundred years ago, there was a widespread perception that ectopic pregnancies universally fatal condition. But before that, I'm joined by Harriet Vickers and Ed Davis, who are here to talk about this week's news. Hi, Duncan. Hi, Duncan. So, uh, Harriet, you have chosen what to talk about this week. What have you got for us? Yeah, I've got a couple of news stories that I thought were particularly interesting. Uh, the first is about the, the journal Science asking researchers to withdraw a paper on chronic f- fatigue syndrome, and, and they link this to uh, an infective retrovirus, XMRV. Yeah, we heard some about that before in one of our podcasts, mm. um, when the BMJ published a paper saying that in Europe, in this study, they couldn't actually find any evidence of this virus. But uh, why is this expression of uh, concern going in science? Like you said, there have been uh, quite a few uh, groups that have tried to replicate the findings. There's been at least 10 papers and they just haven't come up with, um, they haven't detected this XMRV in in any of the the chronic fatigue patients that they've looked at. And um, there's been a couple of reports that have uh, really refuted this. And one says that the association's likely due to contamination of of the research. Have the authors of the report come back and said anything about it? Yeah, they have. They, science, so they actually privately asked them to retract it um, before publishing this editorial expression of concern. But they're they're standing by the results. Quite a controversial topic. So um, I'm sure we'll have more of this in the future. Um, Okay, what was your next one, Harriet? Government plans to ask doctors and healthcare professionals to to identify those at risk of uh, being drawn into to violent extremism. Um, it's unveiled by uh, Theresa May this week as part of their Prevent strategy. Yeah, so there's been uh, quite a bit about that in all over the place. Yeah, well, we're we're saying that really it's just putting doctors in an impossible position. The BMA are kind of rubbishing this really and saying that doctors already know when they need to, to breach confidentiality. So kind of implying this isn't really necessary in the first place. So, Ed, how do you think you'd spot a terrorist? I'm not sure. I'm wondering if maybe the government should introduce it into the quality and outcomes framework to ensure that GPs uh, do pick this up so we could have, how's your smoking cessation going? How's your blood pressure? Do you have genocidal thoughts? <laughs> that sort of thing. It would, it would easily be worked in into a GP's working day. I think it's a terrific idea. <laughs> Do you think there should be extra points for, for GPs that spot other GPs that are terrorists? Because well, that's, that's certainly a I mean, them flying around. I was going to say, I mean, most recent terrorist acts in this country have been carried out by doctors as well. So I think certainly informing doctors of of their duties within medical school even, about other doctors that may be uh, going down that road is uh, absolutely of paramount importance. Mm, so you. watch your patients and watch each other too. Yeah. Great. And Ed, you're here to talk about other government plans as well. You've written a blog on bmj.com this week talking about the reforms and the latest reforms to the reforms. Yeah, I'm, I sort of don't hold a particular candle either way for these reforms, but I think the sort of the outpouring of criticism has been quite gobsmacking over the last few months. And what does strike me now as we reform the reforms of the reforms uh, is that we're getting in a bit of a mess. Uh, what I wrote about this week was essentially that as we try and rein things back, we're probably going to end up just going backwards on things that have already happened. Uh, so, for example, if we uh, remove the deadlines to get GPs into commissioning, 
you end up with some GPs commissioning and some GPs not commissioning, which mm. was exactly why they scrapped fund holding in 1997. And if you take this laissez-faire attitude that everyone will be involved, but we're not going to set a deadline, you end up with practice-based commissioning, where everyone was in theory involved, but actually no one did anything. Uh, and it just concerns me that all this ire from people about the plans will dilute them down to something that's actually quite retrograde. So you think it's better to actually have some plans and do something than just let things slip away? The problem is there's more opinions and can the government listen to that as well? So you've, you've got these original ideas that have been stretched one way and then the other way and then back again. If all these concerns are genuinely listened to, we're going to end up with a complete mess. So there's going to have to be a point where they say, OK, this criticism's fine, this isn't, but actually a lot of you we're going to ignore. Great. Well, thanks, Ed. Thanks, Harriet. Now, Trish Groves, Deputy Editor at BMJ, finds out about immunisation in Chad. Next week, London hosts the Gavi Pledging Conference, where donors, NGOs, vaccine manufacturers and others will assemble to address the need to raise the $3.7 billion needed to scale up immunisation programmes over the next five years. Gavi, in case you don't know, stands for the Global Alliance on Vaccines and Immunisation. One person who's acutely aware of the need for these programmes is Mazio Babile, UNICEF's representative in Chad. Chad lies in Central Africa. Refugees from its neighbouring countries, which include Sudan, Libya and the Central African Republic, combined with its own internal strife and its lack of infrastructure, have left Chad with the lowest levels of immunisation in the world. Dr Babili, what is this conference going to focus on? The conference um, set forth over the next days will be an extraordinary opportunity for international partners to refocus and advance the priority of immunization in the world. The importance of immunization uh, unfortunately faded away progressively over the last years. We have problems to sustain routine coverage and also to obtain quality coverage uh, uh, through campaigns. I refer to measles in particular in some parts of Africa and in some parts of the world. So the importance of immunizing children as a good best start in life to prevent mortality and prevent vaccine preventable diseases must be refocused. And can you tell us more about the program that you're working on actually in Chad? What are the what are the priorities for immunization in Chad at the moment, you know, for this year? Chad is a country that is emerging after 12 years of war and uh, social unrest uh, systems in general have been broken down by uh, these facts. The level of infrastructure damage uh, is appalling. Um, the overall plan of predictable financing to support uh, multi-year routine immunization and campaign is very important. It is at the top priority agenda for UNICEF, as well as uh, communication for immunization and social mobilization at, at grassroots and communities, particularly in areas that have been ravaged by conflict and ethnic strife. The overall priority is now to immunize 2.5 million children below five years of age uh, through routine vaccine against measles, polio, DPT. Secondly is to uh, mobilize and introduce the new vaccine against meningitis. Unfortunately in Chad we've got two important outbreaks in 2010 and also this year causing an extraordinary high toll of morbidity and mortality. Finally is obviously to mobilize uh, communities uh, accepting more immunization 
as you probably know, in Africa, there is a rollback of uh, traditional thinking, and obviously uh, these, uh, in a way, distanced communities and families from services. Mm. We need, finally, to bring the system closer where people live. Uh, normally, uh, communities and also at the level of the poorest of the poor are expected to go somewhere, to go to the health center to receive the immunization. It is time, obviously, for systems to go the other way around, to get closer where people live, to get more and more outreach, uh, increasing quality campaigns and reach every children. I know you've been doing some very interesting work with community groups, particularly around polio immunization. Could you tell us a bit more about that? The polio case is extremely interesting. Chad was free from polio over the last five years and unfortunately cases uh, were imported from northern Nigeria and then uh, transmission has been re-established. So now we have a new enemy. There are only two things and main strategies to uh, implement. First, getting campaigns, polio campaigns, closer on time. So we're expecting now probably one campaign uh, on a monthly basis up to the end of 2011 in order to interrupt transmissions in specific areas in the southern part of the country and in the eastern part of the country where it, it has been re-established. But secondly, in order to do that and to make the vaccine available and the quality immunization taking place, we need obviously to sensitize communities. One of the issues that is commonly detected not only in Chad but in general is the fact that uh, there are misconceptions regarding the vaccine where the vaccine is associated to infertility. There have been also myths uh, or misconception uh, more severe than that uh, in northern Nigeria five years ago. One of the misconceptions uh, that was also probably guided was that vaccine could uh, infect children by HIV AIDS, which was obviously nonsense, but it was very, very rooted. So communication, which is what uh, UNICEF does globally, uh, is the means to dispel such myths. We have uh, question and answer leaflets, and we have, importantly, media approaches and the community approaches through interpersonal communication, door to door, community by community, winning, trust, confidence in the program and dispelling such myths. Well, it sounds as if you have an awful lot to tackle there, but I know that um, there are huge challenges for Chad generally. I know that there are problems with food security and with an influx of refugees from uh, neighbouring countries where there is civil conflict. Um, but I, I understand too that the, the lack of infrastructure is particularly difficult when you're trying to distribute vaccines and keep them cool along the way. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about the cold chain in Chad. Without a reliable cold chain, obviously, uh, preserving vaccine and uh, distributing vaccine is not possible. Uh, therefore, it is very, very important to have a good, strong, sustained investment that goes along a downtime assessment of uh, all equipment. In Chad, due to the war, due to the conflict, but also due to the impossible investment uh, in technology, the majority of the system should be replaced quickly in order to guarantee that the logistics uh, uh, and the quality of vaccine is preserved. The proportion of fully immunized children in Chad is low, 23-25%. We need to increase coverage, but in so doing, it is 
of utmost importance to increase more equitable coverage. There is not only any, a general issue. We need to reach every child in the far-flung areas, whatever his status is. For us, every child must be immunized as a sort of basic principle of child rights. We don't distinguish refugee children from resident children. Recently, UNICEF, um, International Organization of Migration, UNHCR, uh, together delivering as one took over 65,000 uh, Chadian returnees who fled the conflict in Libya. Many children were part of this group and we immunized them all against measles because measles is a disease that kills children very rapidly, particularly in the aftermath of uh, conflict, of refugee crisis. And we also took over nutritionally a huge proportion uh, of these uh, children in need. Well, Dr. Babili, um, thank you very much. You've explained it very fully and uh, we wish you every success at the conference um, in the next few days. Thank you. And we'll be finding out more about the Gavi conference next week. Now, Sophie Cook talks to the author of this week's clinical review about ectopic pregnancy. This week's BMJ clinical review by Devore Yerkovich and Helen Wilkinson is on the diagnosis and management of ectopic pregnancy. Devore is Director of Gynaecology and the Early Pregnancy Unit at University College London Hospital. He has a particular interest in ectopic pregnancy and joins me in the studio today. Devore, are there any presenting symptoms which doctors might not associate with an ectopic pregnancy? The symptom which is particularly important is diagnosed as gastrointestinal problem. And, and in some women, the presentation is mainly with nausea, vomiting and diarrhea often in the absence of bleeding and no history of positive pregnancy test. And, and over the last 15 years, every confidential inquiry, which is regular audit that Royal College of Gynecologists organized in this country, has identified this presentation being particularly dangerous. And about a third of all women who died with ectopic pregnancy died in similar, with similar symptoms. So one of the recommendations which has been repeatedly emphasized is that young women with sudden onset of abdominal pain and gastrointestinal symptoms should be checked for possibility of top of pregnancy. So we really should be considering pregnancy tests, as you say, in people presenting acutely with uh, gastrointestinal obstruction and no real history of infective contact? I, I think so, because uh, it is established and accepted clinical practice that all women of a productive age, whether they use contraception or not, if they present with irregular bleeding, they should have pregnancy tests, which is quite a common problem. It is relatively unusual to see a young woman with a sudden onset severe gastrointestinal symptoms. And, and because the consequences of missing ectopic pregnancy in these cases are so devastating, mm -hmm. I think it's reasonable and we should endorse recommendation from the inquiry that all these women should have pregnancy tests. Okay. So you mentioned that there are different types of management options for ectopics. Can you discuss those in a bit more detail? The approach to ectopic pregnancy is changing, and it is changing with increased sensitivity of our diagnosis. And, and a good example is that perhaps two or three hundred years ago, there was a widespread perception that ectopic pregnancy is universally fatal condition. And this was not because there were ectopic pregnancies much, much more severe or much more dangerous at the time. It's simply because the only way to diagnose ectopic pregnancy 
before surgery became safe was post-mortem examination. So the perception of doctors and public was that ectopic pregnancy always kills. Afterwards, with the development of surgery, it became obvious that there are some women who will survive ectopic pregnancy. But because surgery was used only in rather extreme circumstances, it was felt that ectopic pregnancy is always a very serious condition which requires treatment. With the introduction of laparoscopic surgery, particularly ultrasound, we have learned that there are many more ectopic pregnancy than we believed exist in the past. And we are seeing increasingly presentations which are relatively mild. And as a result, uh, about two decades ago, treatment with methotrexate became popular because it was felt that in some ectopic pregnancies, condition is relatively mild and surgery is not required, but still some form of medication is necessary. And methotrexate has been used in order to stop development of trophoblast and facilitate the resolution of pregnancy. With even better diagnostics, with more sensitive tests and very sensitive ultrasound machine, we have learned that a lot of ectopic pregnancies actually go to process of natural resolution without any treatment. And in my hospital, uh, in, in the last 10 years, we managed about 35 to 40% of ectopic pregnancies without any intervention, simply because we're able to detect ectopic pregnancies which measure only a few millimeters in size, and any form of treatment in these cases probably would do more harm than the condition itself. So, so our approach to management, our perception of disease, changes with the advances in diagnosis. So I believe that in years to come, we're going to see more and more of so-called non-significant ectopic pregnancies. And there'll be increased pressure not to detect ectopic pregnancy and treat ectopic pregnancy, but to decide which ectopic pregnancy is clinically significant and able to do harm and requires prompt and effective treatment. And which ectopic pregnancy is trivial, in which case medication such as methotrexate or surgery could be, could be avoided because ectopic pregnancy is actually less harmful than the operation itself. So this is a relatively novel approach, but the popularity of expected management is increasing, and I envisage that in 10, 15 years it become a relatively uh, accepted and, and, and common way of managing ectopic pregnancy. At the moment, how do you go about selecting those patients who are right for expectant and, say, medical management? Well, I, I often tell to my young colleagues, we're not managing ectopic pregnancy, we're managing patients. So it's important to, to diagnose ectopic pregnancy, to assess its size, to look at the clinical symptoms, to uh, look at the presence of blood clot in the fallopian tube, in the abdominal cavity, and then decide whether this pregnancy is potentially dangerous or not. And if the assessment is a pregnancy may be, manage without surgical intervention, then we have to talk to the woman, look at her social situation, look at her support at home, look at the issues regarding um, her further family family plans, whether she, is, she wished to have further pregnancy, or perhaps this was an accident, and, and, and simple operation would be a relatively simple and easy solution. So there, there are many, many factors, and I often call this biophysical profiling of ectopic pregnancies, and assessment of patients' individual circumstances, which should decide how to manage women. Having had an ectopic pregnancy for women is obviously very distressing, and after treatment there are often questions asked mm. about things like fertility. What advice should doctors offer on this? It's a difficult question because ectopic pregnancy does uh, change future fertility prospects, and, and, and unfortunately, following an ectopic pregnancy, there is a reduced chance of normal intrauterine pregnancy, and also there is much higher chance of subsequent ectopic pregnancy. The risk of ectopic pregnancy in population is about 
1 to 2 percent in, in this country. But uh, following ectopic pregnancy, the risk goes to about 12 to 15 percent. So it's, it's a significant increase. And, and our advice to all women with ectopic pregnancy is first to use very effective contraception if they do not wish to become pregnant, because it is it's terribly sad if, if, if another unplanned pregnancy occurs and perhaps the only left fallopian tube is lost through unwanted pregnancy. We also encourage them to attend for an early ultrasound scan, and it is slightly controversial how early women should come. I think if ultrasound technologies of high quality, uh, then women should encourage to come only a few days after missed period, because normal intraterm pregnancy should be seen about three or four days after missed period in the scan. If facilities are, are, are less sophisticated, then perhaps scan 10, to 10 days to two weeks after missed period would be appropriate, but certainly no longer than two weeks. And what support is available for women after ectopic pregnancies? Every hospital in this country has established early pregnancy unit, and every early pregnancy unit has dedicated counsellor. There are also charitable organisations, and I think Ectopic Pregnancy Trust plays a very important role in this area. There's a well-developed website which is visited by many women where they have opportunity to, to exchange uh, experiences, discuss problems, and also they have access to medical advisors. There's also a miscarriage uh, association which provides uh, advice to women with all sorts of pregnancy losses. And there are a lot of, um, there's a lot of information to patients available at the Royal College of Gynecologists website, which uh, some women may also find helpful. Devil, thank you very much for talking to us. Great pleasure. And you can read that online on bmj.com. That's all for this week. Next week, we'll be finding out more about antiplatelet therapies. Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.